How many people in the world today know that Hashimoto's can be caused by gluten? How many people know that rheumatoid arthritis can be caused by gluten? Or that autoimmune hepatitis can be caused by gluten? Or that kidney failure can be caused by gluten? Or that pericarditis and myocarditis can be caused by gluten? Or that polyendocrine disorders and infertility can be caused by gluten? Like, we've got a huge laundry list of problems. And the reason isn't because gluten is the only cause of every disease. It's because gluten, when you eat it and you shouldn't, creates an underlying inflammatory process that creates collateral tissue damage in your body to all of your organs, not just the gut, right? Once the gut's open, you get systemic flow of gluten and wherever it goes, it can create damage. Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast. I am so pumped today because not only do we have my co-host, Dr. Chris Motley with us, we have an incredible doctor. I've already, we've already recorded before this episode, probably in a, a, a mini episode's worth of information. And I thought <laughs> we just have to start recording because this is so good. So I don't want to waste any time. Dr. Peter Osborne is with us today and his array and experience and knowledge in functional health is unbelievable. And he has a lot of personal experience that he'll speak to. Um, about this, but in terms of his clinical experience, we know that he has changed the landscape for people when it comes to gluten sensitivity and his depth of research is really proof and evidence of that. So I want to go ahead and let him take the floor. Dr. Osborne, can you introduce yourself just in a nutshell to our audience, what it is that you're doing, why you're passionate about it? Thank you again for being here. We are so excited to have this conversation. I know I, for one, am, but uh, I know Dr. Motley is chomping at the bit, too. <laughs> well, it's just an honor to be here. I appreciate both of you having me on. Yeah, I, I, I got into gluten. My, my original background was in chiropractic training. And, and so my, my, um, I was such a, I guess you could say I was such a nerd in, in graduate school that I was able to do all of these different medical rotations through medical programs. And so it's, which is not common in chiropractic, right? So I, I, one of the, one of the rotations I was able to do was in the VA hospital in rheumatology. And so, um, I spent a few months there and the first day of the, of the internship, they hand me this book and they say, go home and read it and don't come back unless you read it. So here I am, I'm a chiropractic ambassador in a medical program. And so I go home and I read the book and I take copious notes. I'm like you, Dr. Motley, I'm a nerd too. And I, and I'm, I'm just doing everything right now. Right? And uh, so I come back and I don't say anything. I just observe for the first few weeks because I don't, you know, again, I'm an ambassador and I don't want to come across as, as um, in the wrong way. But after a couple of weeks, what I realized was everything that I had read from the book, they weren't doing. So like, why did you waste my time in making me read this book and you're not doing it? Um, and what I, what I learned from the book was that we have this whole array of rheumatological autoimmune diseases and they have triggers, right? And so like anytime a person gets an autoimmune diagnosis, like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, the doctor says, we don't know what causes it, but here you go. Here's a biologic drug. Here's methotrexate. Here's a steroid. All we can do is manage your pain and prevent you from having deterioration of your joints and then try to improve your quality of life. And that's what I saw. And it was like, it was horrific because their quality of life wasn't getting better. Like when you put somebody on a biologic, there are bigger problems that come with that. When you put somebody on a steroid, their blood sugars go up, their blood pressures go up, they start gaining weight, they start retaining water. Like there's problems with that. When you put them on methotrexate, you're actually causing leaky gut. You're destroying their gut lining uh, for the sake of trying to help their pain, right? So it's all about symptom mitigation of pain, right? And not about why the disease exists. And so that goes back to 
my original observation after reading the book was that there were triggers. The book and all these experts in rheumatology were talking about the known triggers for these diseases. What were they? If I summarize them, it's very simple. Food is a trigger. Chemical exposures are a trigger. Things like pesticides. We knew that microbial imbalance or infection, different types of, um, like Lyme, for example, Lyme can cause a form of rheumatoid arthritis. Klebsiella can cause joint pain that mimics arthritis. Mm. So we have, mm. we have these, these, these microbial imbalances. And then the last was nutritional deficit. And probably the most well-studied to date is vitamin D deficiency. Because we know vitamin D deficiency can trigger and contribute to RA flares. But they weren't measuring vitamin D. They weren't checking the microbiome. They weren't looking for food as a potential trigger, and they certainly weren't inquisitive enough to ask these people's backgrounds and whether or not they were being exposed to certain types of chemicals. So none of those things were happening. And I was just a student, super frustrated because I had just been given this arsenal of knowledge and I'm excited about it, right? Because I love to help people. I want people to find an answer, and especially VA, because I'm a veteran and I have great respect for veterans. And it was like being deflated because here I am and they're not doing any of these things. No matter what the diagnosis was, whether it was rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, didn't matter. These people were getting methotrexate and they were getting steroids, right? Mm -hmm. That's what that, that was, didn't matter. So I'm like, why does it matter the diagnosis? Because my attending kept saying, you need to memorize the seven criteria for rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. I'm like, well, who created the criteria? And why are these the seven criteria? And why are they vague and, and kind of, milky subjective and not super hardcore objective criteria that we're using because you know you get one guy over here who says it's rheumatoid arthritis you get the other guy over here who says ah, it looks a little bit more like ankylosing spondylitis for whatever re weird random experience he's had right and so it's not it wasn't a real objective thing for me and i'm objective and so I'm like, well, well, let's just back up. Here's what the book said. You asked me to read the book. Here's what the book said. We're not doing these things. Can we start doing these things? Hmm. Right. Just give me, give me a side group. I'll take them over here and we'll start looking at food as a potential. And here, look, I, I went to the library and brought a whole bunch of research here, here, gluten and rheumatoid arthritis. There's these huge correlations in the rheumatology literature here. Let's, let's do this. Give me, give me some people and we'll take this to another level. Hmm. And they said, no, we're not doing that. So then I went back to the library, you know, here in Houston, we have the largest medical, one of the largest medical libraries in the world, Jesse Jones Library. So I spent a lot of nights there, but I gathered more research on fasting because if you took a patient with severe pain and autoimmune pain and you fasted them for 48 hours, you could dramatically reduce it and oftentimes eliminate their pain. And I'm wow. like, look, man, fasting, it's, it's chemicals in the food or food. One of the two, it's not rocket science, you know? And I was asking again, give me some Give me some leeway to do some things with these patients. Nope, can't do it. So then I went back to the library and I gathered research and, and found evidence on omega-3 fatty acids as a mechanism to treat pain, right? So if you get high enough EPA, DHA, you can modulate pain well enough that you can bring down a person's pain without the steroids, without the drugs. Mm. And I thought maybe that was a better angle because we had prescription fish oil. And so I'm like, okay, hey, maybe they'll actually want to prescribe something other than a steroid that destroys a person's health. No, I was told no again. So I left with super duper frustration. You could imagine it was not a great experience. It was a wonderful experience in the sense that I was given the opportunity and I was given the knowledge and the information. And so when I left, um, one of my very first patients in private practice, because I started my own practice, I said, I can't, I can't work with other people and do it that way. I just have to be able to make, I have to be able to call the shots. Well, I met a little girl. She was nine years old. Her name was Ginger. 
And she was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at the age mm -hmm. of two. And from the age of two, so imagine you have a daughter, age of two, right? Very dangerous diagnosis. Seven years, they pumped this little girl full of methotrexate. So those of you that don't, are listening that maybe don't know what methotrexate is, it's a cancer medicine, right? It's a chemotherapeutic agent. So imagine your two-year-old with joint pain being pumped full of methotrexate. And now imagine, you know, that they put a permanent port in your child, in, her, in their body, so that they can go in and out of the hospital for pain management because the methotrexate is not enough to manage the pain. And now imagine doing that for seven years and you have this wonderful trust in these doctors and they're telling you this is the right course, right? And then seven years go by, your child's not any better. You spent thousands and thousands of dollars, countless trips to the ER, countless trips to the doctor. And then the doctor has the gall to look you in the eye and say, you need to go home and get ready to prepare for a funeral. Your daughter has six months to live. Hmm. Imagine that. I mean, the, the, the pain of, of losing a child is one of the greatest pains in the world. And I can speak personally on that. I lost a son to cancer. And, and so Ginger was here in my lab and, and she was, that was her name, Ginger. And she was here in my office expecting, you know, something because her mom, I mean, her mom was in total desperation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, here I am, I'm a chiropractor, right? So I'm obviously not the first doctor in most people's thoughts for chronic autoimmune rheumatological disease, but here they were here in desperation. And I, and I think God just, he sent me through this path so that I could have that knowledge so that when she landed in my office and we found out she was gluten sensitive, mm -hmm. but something else that was very unique about her was that she was allergic to blueberries. And every morning her mom would give her a blueberry smoothie because, you know, blueberries are a superfood and she was just trying to do the right thing and help her. Right. Well, well she was gluten sensitive and allergic to blueberries and we changed her diet. And inside of six months, we got the port removed and she was supposed to be dead. We were taking the port out because she was no longer in pain. Inside of 12 months, she was in total remission. And that was 20 years ago. Um, today, she's graduated college. You know, she's off in the world doing wonderful things. But, <laughs> but she was given a six month diagnosis. Right. And so that I think, again, here I was at that VA hospital frustrated, but given this opportunity to learn. And then taking that knowledge and then being, having the gift of being able to apply it with one of my very first patients. And it was at that moment when, when I knew her life was saved, I knew that this was information that could not be hoarded or tucked away or ignored or ridiculed. And so from that point, I made it my life's mission to get this information into the hands of as many people as possible. And so that's why I founded Gluten-Free Society as a as an arm if you will or as a foundation to allow people to come and find this information for free at no cost so that they could really understand it and make meaningful changes in their lives i i want to say like kudos to you doc and i and i know me and courtney are like you know when when you deal, deal with not only just like adult patients adult clients adult people that you deal with but there's something that strikes a chord in your heart right brother like whenever you see somebody that's a young person that says like they have no hope and finding and, and, you know, finding the needles in the haystack, like you found blueberries and you found gluten. And it's, it's amazing to me that like in our regular medical industry, it's that they would often overlook that. They, I mean, I know how many times have we all heard guys that they go, oh, oh don't worry about it. Just let them eat this and, and do that. They're fine. And you find something like blueberries and you can see the, how much it hurts a child. And then all of a sudden they come in and walking and they're thriving. 
And I think the people out there that are listening right now um, appreciate that. It, it touches my heart when I hear about that, when you say methyltrexate. And I'm not trying to divert, guys. I remember I had a girl that came in, uh, uh, guys, and um, she, had, she was an um, a ice skater. And when you talk about methyltrexate, Doc, they, were, uh, they said she had juvenile RA. And so first thing they want her to do is put her on a certain a methyltrexate. And then she's only nine years old. And I was like, well, th th when I checked her out, Doc, I was like, okay, well, you have, you have corn sensitivity pretty badly. I said, get off corn and get off dairy. And, um, and you know, I was trying to check all our Chinese medicine points, man. And I, and I checked it and it was like gallbladder and she had a lot of parasites and it fought all on the gallbladder. And um, her dad fought tooth and nail with a dog, just saying, can we, can we divert and not do this, this methyltrexate just yet? Cause you know, it's a chemo drug. And um, we started on like a couple of herbs and I'm not saying I saved the day. It was not that, it was just that his family members wanted him to go through with it. And I was like, well, I'm gonna help uh, along the way. But before they started the methyltrexate, we started stuff like to help her gut. You know, I said, get off the corn, get off the dairy. And she was like starting to do like turns. She's like, oh yeah, I'm actually doing turns on the ice. And, and then they went ahead and did that uh, with some methyltrexate. But they wanted her to go for two more years. And so he backed off to do with one more year, uh, just one year. But she started to get improvement where she could actually do that. And uh, actually, even with the methyltrexate. So I was not trying to like go against what our medical doctors were saying. It was just surprising that with all of that, like you're saying is how much they push like, and I don't know if they even know, like, the, like they wouldn't know the difference that people are pushing methyltrexate, but how strong a drug it is. So I hope I just can go the whole side rabbit trail, but everybody out there is listening. It's like investigation is key. Like if you investigate properly, you can find ways to help people with such of these, these complicated cases. Courtney, you want to add into that? I'm sorry. I took it. No, I, I mean, I, this, it's incredible. And truthfully, like, I just think that these are the stories that need to be communicated and shared because a lot of times as a parent, especially, you get into those moments where your child is severely affected. There are symptoms that are presenting that scare you as a parent. This is not just a random fever or cold. It's something that is very serious. And at that point, you feel like you have no other option or you're too late for a different approach because you think I can't, I don't have, I maybe don't have the time to start experimenting with more of a holistic approach or natural remedies. And in this case, both cases, you know, we're looking at helping the body. And just in, in the one case that you talked about, Dr. Osborne, it was removing inflammatory foods or removing the offender. And then the child's body was allowed the space to heal. But as a parent, I mean, I know like it's, it is terrifying to think, okay, I'm rolling the dice. I'm going against what the doctor that's supposed to know, you know, that, that knows the indications of the drugs and feels that this is the best route for us to take. And I'm going to choose to, to look at something different. Um, and I think that just really speaks to the efficacy of, of natural remedies of taking, taking a different route and not thinking that, Hey, if things get so far down the line, like I'm just not really left with anything. I have to go the conventional model and, and, you know, drugs are my last resort. Um, in some cases, maybe there that is useful or maybe appropriate, but I think that we think natural remedies are like more of a preventative or like a soft way to help the body. They're not as proven or not as effective. And that's just not the case. And on a side note, guys, uh, Courtney, I had to laugh. She just sent me a text so that she could hear me typing. So for all those <laughs> who, are who are editing this, I'm so sorry, Peter. Okay, so it's going to show up at all. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But when we talk <laughs> about gluten, because we, I know what we want to talk about gluten, and a lot of people out there want to talk yeah. about gluten. We want to hear about mold too. But I, I want to say this, uh, and it's, it's Courtney. It's okay to say, uh, go through this. Now we know how gluten is bad. What are just people out there are going to ask you why is gluten so bad? 
like they're going to ask literally like what does gluten do like to your thyroid or to your body is there just some simple basic things that you can say this is why gluten is not good for your body and causes inflammation well, i think first we have to define it, that it's not gluten it's bad or evil just like cholesterol is not bad or evil mm -hmm. right i mean I think we have to understand what gluten actually is. If we, if we just think about it from a biological perspective, gluten is the, the term for a family of proteins found within the seeds of, of um, grain mm -hmm. or grass, seeds of grass. So, you know, it's not one term. We say gluten, but it really technically should be glutens, right? And so there are a thousand different forms of gluten that we're aware of. Wow. What is their job? Their, their job is to protect and to defend the seed from being eaten into extinction, right? So if you think about that from a biology perspective, every, every part of the animal and plant kingdom has protective mechanisms that are designed for them to protect them, right? To protect their ability to propagate life and continue to go on. And if you think of gluten as more of a protector for the seed, then it makes better sense to understand that when you take seeds as a staple food into your life and into your diet, what you're actually getting large exposure to are these sensory proteins that have the ability to shut down and damage your gut, your digestion and cause inflammation and irritation in your body, not because they're bad or evil, but because they're trying to prevent you from eating their species into extinction, hmm. right? So if you, if you just think about it from a biological perspective, it's, it's a turn because we all, you know, go back to the Bible and we talk about the bread of life. And, you know, I could argue too, that in Genesis, you know, some people, you know, especially those that, that take the Eucharist that, you know, the body of Christ. And now in the Catholic church, for example, there's a, there's a low gluten wafer, but not a zero gluten wafer that the, the wafers they use in the Catholic church are 56 parts per million gluten, which is, you know, 36 points too high to label it gluten-free. Well, if they're willing to go that low, why not get it down under 20? It didn't make sense to me. I'm Catholic, so I, it, it didn't make sense to me. I got upset when they wouldn't even entertain the thought. But beside that point, in Genesis, when God casts Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not, I'm not saying the exact term, but it's something to the nature of you will toil in the field and brambles and thorns Brambles and thorns will be, you know, will be your punishment in a sense. And so it's like Garden of Eden was a perfect place, right? And here we are going to cast people out and toil in the field. But what do we do in the field? We grow grain, right? I mean, as a culture, as a, you know, as a globe, right? I mean, grain is a predominant staple food for the world. Um, is that part of our brambles and thorns? Is that part of, of, of the punishment of moving away from perfect? I don't know. I'm not mm -hmm. a biblical scholar. I just, it's something I've thought about. You know, when people ask me the question, you know, about about bread being the staff of life. And I, I think there are also arguments that we could make that is, is it really bread? You know, manna, when you look at manna historically, manna was also uh, there was a type of mushroom that would blossom in the deserts when when the uh, when the Jews were fleeing, um, that they would be nourished with every morning that would regrow. Was that bread or was that the bread of life? manna which was potentially maybe even a mushroom or a form of i don't know again wow. some people think it was a is a, a different form of, of a plant altogether so again not not having been there at the time not knowing just being kind of somebody who wants to ask questions and and, and think through things a little bit and, and ask questions i'm not i'm not married to the idea that everybody is gluten sensitive but i'm also not married to the idea that i think that the world should be using gluten as a staple food 
And if you look at every culture that ever introduced gluten as a staple food, you, you very quickly see that culture start to deteriorate. You saw mm -hmm. it uh, in the Egyptians. You saw it in the Romans. You're seeing it in the U.S. now. Um, you know, there are other things that lead to that deterioration. I'm not so short-sighted that grain is the only thing that I'm, I'm accusing as being part of the problem. But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing too, too far and I'm waxing too much philosophically, but I like um, it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. What you hear sometimes people will say that they'll go to other countries and, you know, they're gluten-free. So, you know, they're not eating uh, wheat products that, you know, like, you know, the, the most common thing are, are just bread or anything that is, is going to be a, a high, I mean, there, there's gluten contamination in gosh, virtually like every sauce and condiments it, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. But for people that are really gluten-free and so they're, they're aware of where it can kind of be sneaky and hide, but then they say they can go to other parts of the world and maybe have their sourdough or a different type of, you know, like a, I don't know, like their own milled type of bread. And then they don't experience any symptoms. Do you yeah, think that there's any, you know, correlation to the, the type of wheat that we have hybridized in the States that is unlike other forms of wheat that causes a, a lesser form of aggravation to the gut? Absolutely. I mean, you have, there's a few things there. I mean, one is that there are different gluten contents in different grain. And so it's not all like, hey, this grain, this, this strain, contains X gluten and this strain contains Y gluten. It's this same strain grown in two different soils, given certain amounts of water during its growing process might have more gluten or less gluten depending. So it's not even as simple as this strain versus that strain. It's, it's the growing conditions of the grain itself. Remember, gluten is, is a, it's a mechanism that defends from predation, but gluten is also a storage protein that feeds the embryo of the grain or the germ of the grain so that it can sprout. So it serves oh. two, two functions. It's a food source for the, for the grain, but it's also a defense mechanism. And so, you know, in times of drought, for example, there, there's been studies that show that a grain that gets less water contains more gluten, you know, and is that because it's storehousing more of that to feed so that that seed can germinate, propagate the species? I don't know. I think so. I think that might, that's a reasonable argument to make. I think you also have to look at in, in Europe, when people go to Europe, they're, they're being exposed to less chemicals overall. So like if your comparative is U.S., you know, where there's 30,000 chemicals that are approved on the grass list to be in our food and around our environments, you're not getting quite the dose over there. And so remember, it's not just gluten. So a lot of people say, well, gluten causes everything. Well, it's not just gluten. It's also how you live your life. It's how well you sleep, whether you get exercise, whether you get sunshine, the, other, the quality of the other foods that you're eating, the quality of the relationships and your spirituality. Um, the quality of your air, the quality of your water. These are all non-negotiable fundamentals of good health. And when you go on a vacation and you're minimizing your chemical exposure, but you're also, maybe you're getting a milled bread that, that wasn't double soaked in the chemical glyphosate, then maybe you are going to be less reactive to that grain. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're not gluten sensitive. And this is why I think it's important for a person to understand, look, if you're not gluten sensitive, then you, you may go over there and have a great experience with it. But if you're truly gluten sensitive, you shouldn't be eating gluten, right? And that's the distinction. Not everybody is gluten sensitive. There's, there's estimates. What, what degree of, of people are actually gluten sensitive? Well, if we go back to 20 years ago, the thought was it was one in 133 that, that had celiac disease, right? So less than 1%. Then they changed that. They changed it to like one. And then now they're looking at it as more like 3%. But 
Then there's this term called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is these people that react to gluten that don't get celiac disease, but maybe they get neurological disease or liver disease or skin disease or Hashimoto's, you know, thyroid disease. These people, it's estimated that they're 7% of the population. And that's according to experts in gastroenterology. So, you know, and if you look at some other people's work, like my work and the work of Dr. Kenny Fine in Dallas, uh, who runs a lab called Interlab, 40% is his estimation. And I, I kind of tend to agree more with him based on my own experience. So I think it's a lot more than what we, what we ever anticipated. And I think the reason why we're seeing so much more illness in today's world, part of it is because the onslaught of chemicals we're being exposed to and the, the loss of spirituality in the world, I think that deteriorates a person's light. It deteriorates their health. It deteriorates their resiliency. Mm. But, I, but I also think that if we look at quantitatively how much grain people are eating in the US alone, 70% of the total caloric intake comes from wheat. And that wasn't always true. Like cereal was invented in 1894, 1895. It was post and Kellogg that uh, really came out with the first processed cereals. And, and because that, I think it was Kellogg, I can't remember, I can't remember if it's Kellogg or Post. Don't quote me on this. Um, <laughs> but he was a doctor and he ran, Kellogg was the doctor and he ran, he ran like a health retreat of the day, right? And so he was staunch. I believe he was staunchly vegan, but I could be wrong. It may have been somebody else, but one of them was staunchly vegan. And so they introduced grain as a, as a premier food for their, for their medical retreat. And so cereal was invented, if you really want to think about it, in, in the late, late 1800s, 1895, somewhere in that neighborhood. And by the year 1912, physicians were screaming about the onslaught of new gastrointestinal diseases, like B.B. Crohn, the doctor that Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disease, he coined the term regional ileitis uh, because after cereal was introduced, he kept seeing all these sick patients. And then you fast forward into the early 19. 40s, late 1930s, there was another physician, a Dutch physician, who found that the children in his hospital who had celiac disease, and at the time, we didn't know what caused celiac disease. It was just a disease that children would get, and they would die from failure to thrive. They would have muscle wasting and diarrhea, and they just couldn't keep the weight on it. Ultimately, they would die. Well, he found during World War II, when grain was rationed, and they couldn't get grain as a food in the hospital, that these children spontaneously recovered. And so he, yeah, and that was in 1943 that he observed that and wrote and wrote his papers on that. So you, you, and then you have also, you have what happened in the early 1900s, which as grain became more and more of a staple food in the South US, it was predominantly, it was corn. You had 9,000, almost 9,000 deaths a year from malnutrition caused by pellagra and beriberi. And that was because of the way the grain was being produced because it was malnourishing, like you would eat calories without vitamins, right? And when you do that, just like alcohol, calories without vitamins makes you sick. And, um, and there were a number of really intelligent doctors that made that observation. And so it was the US government that stepped in in 1943 and passed food fortification laws. So if you were going to sell processed grain, you couldn't sell it, it became illegal to sell it unless you fortified it. And that's why when you pick up a bag of bread or a loaf of a bread or a box of crackers or whatever. If you look on the, on the label, it'll say fortified with, and you'll see mm -hmm. thiamine and niacin and folate and iron. It's because like, here, here's the twist. This, this food is so bad for you. It will kill you if you eat it. And the cereal marketers said, let's not say that that's a bad message, right? What they said instead was 
Now, part of a balanced breakfast, it's even better for you because it's fortified with vitamins and minerals. So it was a, it was a really, and you say it's brilliant marketing on their behalf, but I think it led to the detriment, a, a vast deterioration in the quality of life and health for many Americans and, and people globally, really honestly. Like with that, Doc, I mean, like, according, I mean, chime in, Courtney, I'm just asking, like, with this, if you have, like, you know, we talk about gluten itself and you talk about grain injury and many people out there, you know, you know, what does our eyes do when we see like a healthy restaurant that has like gluten-free pancakes? I, my eyes get as big as a cartoon character <laughs> because I'm like, I am going to have some, you know, Peter, you know, it's like, you're going to be like, I, I can have this, but truthfully, okay, I know. Everybody out there, we're not dogging people who like when you use green, uh, gluten free. But when we talk about grains and then everybody's like, well, I'm gluten free. Is it, I mean, to say I'm just gluten free, you know, like I eat all the breads that are gluten free. Is it still detrimental, even though it's gluten, it's gluten free, that you're consuming all these grains, you know, like and, and in your opinion? It's not gluten free. Let's define what gluten is. Gluten is the family of proteins found in the seeds of grass, period. And I didn't make that definition up, although. It was a doctor by the name of T.J. Osborne. He's, he's known as the father of plant chemistry um, who created that definition. It's just a complete coincidence that our last names are the same. We're not related. And our last names are actually spelled the same as well, which I found interesting. But um, he defined gluten as the, the family of storage proteins found in the seeds of grass that are soluble in alcohol. Like that's the definition, right? And so he classified all these and then there are subclasses of gluten. There's glutalins. And then there's, uh, there's like gliadin is what we, in America, gliadin, and really in the world, gliadin, which is only found in wheat and barley and rye, is the name of one of the types of glutens in those grains, but it's just one, one type. Like, for example, corn has gluten, it's corn gluten, it's called zein, Z-E-I-N. Rice has a form of gluten called orzenin. So you, you have a glutens found in all grains. So there's really technically no such thing as a gluten-free corn pancake or rice pancake. Uh, now, where you can get a gluten-free pancake is if you're using like almond and tapioca, root starch flours and that kind of thing. And those are pretty good. Like, so I would say I would encourage people that want that pancake to kind of encourage exploring some of those other root vegetable options of flours. But technically, there's no such thing as a gluten-free grain. It's just that the FDA... And the powers that be choose to do food labeling as wheat, barley, and rye only. And so you can have a product that is free of, of wheat, barley, and rye gluten down to 20 parts per million. And you can label it gluten-free, even though technically it's not gluten-free. And this is one of the biggest areas of confusion for the average consumer who's trying to go on a gluten-free diet. And honestly, it's what's, what's really crazy about this, because I, I've actually been involved. In, I've contacted a number of research institutes to get their opinion on it, and I never can get anyone's opinion. But um, if you look at the quantity of people with celiac disease who fail to exhibit villous recovery mm -hmm. after following a traditional gluten-free diet, traditional meaning wheat, barley, and rye-free only, 92% fail. Like, I mean, think about that in terms of like, if we're saying catastrophic failure. That, I mean, if that's your grade is 8% in school, like your parents will ground you, Right. Like you, you would not, you would not get rewarded for scoring 8% on a test. So why are we rewarding the medical community, you know, for failing at, observ at observing that 92% of patients with celiac disease fail to achieve villous atrophy recovery when they're following a gluten-free diet. And we go even so far as to call it refractory celiac disease. Again, I mentioned that earlier, but it's a, it's a form of 
the disease where people um, continue to struggle in their health. But the, one of the problems is, is when the person goes traditional gluten-free, their celiac disease does improve. I don't want to say there's no improvement. It's not like all improvement or no improvement. You know, as you know, there's a scale, it's a polar scale. Um, but what you get is people that improve to a large degree. Maybe the celiac doesn't have diarrhea anymore and they feel better, but they go on to develop other forms of autoimmune disease like thyroid disease, or they go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis, or they go on to develop some type of neurological like MS, multiple sclerosis. And it's because of gluten. It's just not because of wheat, barley, or rye gluten, right? And so they get a morph, they get a morphological change in the nature of the autoimmune response because they did change your diet and they did improve in some ways. But then when they go to their doctor, because now they've developed rheumatoid arthritis, their doctor's not making the connection between gluten and rheumatoid arthritis. They're completely oblivious to uh. nutrition. And so this patient now gets a new diagnosis and they think it has nothing to do with the original diet diagnosis of celiac disease. And so they're being led to methotrexate. They're being led to TNF alpha inhibitors and, and biologics. They're being led to the steroids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And they're being told, we don't know what causes your disease, but we know how to treat it. And here's a bunch of drugs. That never made sense to me anyway. Like, how can you not know what, what my disease is caused by, but you know the solution? Like, how pompous can you be that you can't admit that what you're really giving me is a Band-Aid, you know, for an infected wound and the infection is never going to go away if you cover it up. It's just mm -hmm. going to fester. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, that's philosophical. But my, my <laughs> point is, my point is this. The average person with one autoimmune disease will go on to develop seven. And that's statistically speaking on average. So mm -hmm. if you've got somebody, if you've got this whole group of people, 1% at least of the population has celiac disease and 92% of them fail to receive full healing. And of all of them, on average, they're going to go on to develop six or seven more forms of autoimmune disease in their lifetime that don't get treated as dietary cause in origin. And mm -hmm. so then now they're just being medicated. Right. And they don't even know. They don't even know to ask the question. How many people in the world today know that Hashimoto's can be caused by gluten? How many people know that rheumatoid arthritis can be caused by gluten or that autoimmune hepatitis can be caused by gluten or that kidney failure can be caused by gluten or that pericarditis and myocarditis can be caused by gluten or that polyendocrine disorders and infertility can be caused by gluten? Like we've got a huge laundry list of problems. And the reason isn't because gluten is the only cause of every disease. It's because gluten, when you eat it and you shouldn't, creates an underlying inflammatory process that creates collateral tissue damage in your body to all of your organs, not just the gut, right? Once the gut's open, you get systemic flow of gluten and wherever it goes, it can create damage. And so, and so if you don't understand and recognize that the core of the problem with gluten is that it's inflammatory and that the core of diagnostic workup in the United States is that people have chronic disease right? That are caused by inflammation, but nobody's ever really asking, where does the inflammation come from? They're just trying to suppress it. Then nobody gets better. And, and all we do is depend on a system of medications to suppress inflammation that <laughs> fails us. It fails us on every level. It's spiritual bankruptcy because what we're really doing is we're addicting the nation to drugs that don't work, calling that the solution when in fact we're enriching companies and we're enriching institutions that have failed us miserably. The US healthcare ranks 11th out of 11 of the top industrialized countries in, in outcomes, right? Yet we, I think we consume 80% of the world's pharmaceuticals, right? So if pharmaceuticals were truly the answer, you would expect empirically to see that the US has this like super robust health and we don't. And it's, and it's just deteriorating year after year after year. You know, you've got to look at gluten as a part of that. 
And, and so I know I've kind of diverted a little bit off of your question, which is, you know, I think it's important to understand that gluten is not just in wheat, barley, and rye, and that it's in all forms of grass uh, or seeds of grass. So that includes corn, rice, sorghum, and millet. Okay. And that there are other pseudo grains like amaranth, buckwheat, and quinoa that in some research studies have been shown to mimic gluten enough to create an inflammatory response in people with gluten sensitivity. Wow. So, you know, when I, when I take somebody down the path of, you know, okay, do, do we really need to dedicate 12 weeks of your life to go through this learning curve of understanding what gluten is so that you can be healthy? I want to know whether or not, first of all, that they're gluten sensitive, because I don't care what their experience in Europe was. It, they're, they're, 10,000 variables that could explain why they felt better in Europe. And, and to me, the one that stands out the biggest is that you're on vacation and you're making dopamine and you're making serotonin and you're flying high. And these are natural pain relievers. These, these hormones are natural pain relievers. So when you go off and you're having this wonderful time and your cares are behind you for a time, you will feel better regardless of where you're at, whether in Europe or South America or Australia, it won't matter. You'll feel better because of the nature of what vacation does to brain chemistry. So we have, we have to look and ask the question, is the person gluten sensitive? And the only way, in my opinion, to know that is to do genetic testing. And the reason why is because all the medical serology tests, all the blood tests are based on gliadin, meaning we'll look for gliadin, which is only found in wheat, right? So we're, we're, we're measuring one type of gluten and we're usually only measuring one type of antibody. So like, if you go to the doctor, your body makes IgG, IgA, IgM, IgE, and IgD, really, we don't know a lot about IgD, but, but these four antibodies, right, that we can measure. And when they're measuring for gliadin antibodies or gluten antibodies, they're only measuring IgG and IgA. So they're not measuring IgM and they're not measuring IgE. And then there's also other aspects and arms to our immune system. So our immune system also produces um, what's called complement. So they're complement factors that our immune system makes in response to, to different environmental triggers. And we're not measuring that to gluten. We're not measuring toll-like receptors. We're not measuring um, interferon. We're not measuring TNF alpha to gluten. These are all just different ways the immune system can react. We're basically, we're saying, we're going to forget about all the ways your immune system can react. We're going to pick one way and we're going to pick one type of gluten out of literally a thousand forms of gluten. And that's all we're going to measure to make the decision about whether or not you should avoid gluten in your diet. It's a very non-comprehensive approach. And, you know, the other aspect is, is, is that celiac disease, right? So they, so many think that gluten sensitivity and celiac disease are the same thing. They're not. Everybody with celiac disease is gluten sensitive, but not everybody with gluten sensitivity will develop celiac disease. And this is why it's important to classify gluten sensitivity as a non-disease state. It is a state of genetic predisposition. If you have the genes that view gluten as a threat to your body and you expose your genes to that threat, your genes will activate in an attempt to neutralize that threat. And the side effect of that is inflammation in all its various ways, not in one way, not in one antibody way, but in all of its various ways. So you have immune activation as a result of exposure. And the best way to know whether or not you are going to have that is to be genetically tested. And if you get genetically tested and you have positive markers, then if you're trying to be health conscious and preventative in your life, it's best that you avoid gluten, period. That's my, my experience and thousands and thousands of people. And, and that's my opinion. So I, I think a lot of doctors are smart. I think there's a lot of really wonderful doctors out there saying great things about, about gluten, but I think a lot of them miss that part. And when I, when I've gone to some of the major researchers and asked the questions, I don't get good answers. It's like, they almost, it's like many of them didn't even think it through. 
But to me, I like to think it through. I like to think through what are the knowns and what are the unknowns? We know the immune system fairly well. We know a lot of the ways it can react. So why are we being so short-sighted in the way that we measure the outcomes of those reactions? And then telling people who might be gluten sensitive that they're crazy, right? And then sending them to psych, right? Because, you know, we're just, there's a new term in medicine now, it's called orthorexia. And I think it's one of the most disgusting terms ever because it's it's the highest form of gaslighting from a doctor who doesn't understand his patient to accuse his patient of wasting his time and of wasting their time. Like who, who has a patient? How many of you listening? Raise your hand if you're listening. How many of you want to go to the doctor and waste your time? Okay, I, I'm sure no hands went up, right? So, or maybe if you did, I don't know. But um, nobody wants to waste their time in a doctor's office. Like they go to the doctor because they're a trusted expert and they wanna to try to figure out what the problem is and to get called crazy or to be called food phobic right? Because you started to learn and you started to get educated about nutrition. Like that's an insult, especially coming from a profession. If you look at the medical profession, look, I'm not opposed to medicine. I'm not opposed to medical doctors. I think there's a time and place for them. But um, how many hours of nutrition did the average medical doctor receive while going through graduate and undergrad? And the answer is less than seven hours. And when you investigate the actual class that's being taught, the class goes something like this. This is a paraphrase of the class. Welcome to nutrition in medical school. You don't really have to worry about nutrition because it's not all that important. Class dismissed. That's not nutrition training. And if we look at one of the oldest known forms, recorded forms of medicine, which is Ayurveda, right? Which is deeply entrenched in nutrition, as I'm sure both of you are aware, like nutrition should be the first stop, not the afterthought, Mm -hmm. right? Diet change should be the first stop because we know cancer, heart disease, and diabetes and obesity, those are all dietary, right? We've known that everybody knows. It's like common knowledge. Everybody knows it. So why, when you go to the doctor, do they just completely kind of glaze over that nutrition part and say, here, let's give you this medicine for the rest of your life. Don't argue with me. I'm right. You're wrong. Um, Now go away and be a good little boy or girl, you know, anyway. I love this episode. Me too. I'm just like, this is like, I'm so fired up right now. This is great. Yeah. I mean, but this is it, you know, and truthfully, I just hope everybody feels super empowered because you're going to have to go in and advocate for yourself because you will get the response as, you know, nutrition doesn't, that doesn't play a role. That's not a factor. You know, we're looking at X, Y, and Z diagnosis, and that's what you have. And this is how we treat that. And you're going to have to learn to stand up for yourself, even though you may not feel like you're qualified to do it. You are. It's your body and nobody will advocate. Nobody knows your body better than you do. That's why this podcast exists because we want to help. And we want to help with the knowledge portion so that you feel like you know more about yourself and you can put the pieces together and then you can present that formula to your practitioner and you can ask the right questions and you are absolutely entitled and have every right to get an answer to it. And to be written off is just not acceptable, but mm-hmm. that is very much the reality for many people. And, you know, when you're standing there in front of somebody in a white coat with an MD, you know, you just don't really feel like you're in a position to challenge that authority. So I'm not saying everybody needs to go <laughs> scorched earth on their practitioner, but <laughs> you know, there's a time and place where sometimes you got to ask the hard questions and you got to be okay with stepping on some toes and ruffling some feathers. So I'm here for it. <laughs> this is right. great. I was. This is great, Doc. There, I, I want to just chime in on what you just said, because I think the way I would like people to view it is if you built a house and the roof was leaking, you would hold that company who built your house accountable for that roof leak. 
if you go into your practitioner, right, and they give you something that doesn't work, right, that doesn't help, you would hold them, you think you would want to hold them accountable, right? Just because the human body is complex and a mystery doesn't mean there should be no accountability. And mm -hmm. if we look at business and business models across the world, I can't think of another business model. Okay, you, you correct me if, if you can think of one, but I, I've tried. Is there another business model that perpetually fails its customer to achieve an outcome, a desired outcome, but continues to profit? The, the only one that I can think of is, is the gambling industry, right? You go, you, I mean, those casinos weren't built on their money. They were built on your loss, right? So, I mean, um, well, I, I look at medicine the same way. If you come to Houston, you'll see downtown the medical center. It's like Vegas. It's all these skyrise buildings designed to treat people. But if you look at the empirical outcomes of what all these buildings have accomplished, I'm not saying they haven't accomplished great things. There's certainly lots of life-saving surgeries and medical devices, among other things. And, and I think that there's something to be said for all that because those are wonderful inventions and creations. But I think if you look empirically at chronic disease, specifically chronic disease, you should be able to hold your accounter, or not your accounter, your, your practitioner accountable for an outcome, mm. right? There should be an expectation of an outcome and it shouldn't just be pawned off to, yeah, whatever, you know, I only have five minutes today. Like, and if you're not getting that from your doctor, understand that maybe you don't want to have a fight with your doctor. I get that. I mean, confrontation's uncomfortable, but maybe, you know, speak with your wallet. Because that provider is there. And the only reason that provider exists is because you're paying his bills by speaking with your wallet. And if the outcomes aren't what you want, just like in any other walk of life, if you hired a plumber and they came out and did a bad job, you wouldn't rehire that plumber. Mm -hmm. You get a refund and find one that would work better. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing in, in healthcare. Find one, hold the ones that you're working with a little bit more accountable. They should be a little bit more accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, medical professionals are not inherently wrong. It's the system and the training that's wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at the med who is paying, you know, for these medical institutions to train your doctor. It's it's backed by big pharma. A lot of times that the drug companies are the ones that invest in the training that your practitioner is, you know, being trained in. And so to me, there's like layers upon layers of conflict of interest. But you have to look even further, like you don't need to go in guns blazing with, you know, a, a person that's in front of you. Likely they want to help you. That's why they got into that field. But unfortunately, the way that they've been trained is not with an eye that looks at the body the way that we're having a discussion about it. Yeah, that's right. very well. That's right. I, I agree. I think that um, I was just writing those notes down uh, so I don't hear you guys don't hear me typing. I'm putting it in my phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, but um, um, you know you're right. I think that uh, every system has its its ups and its downs. And I, and, you know, when you look at an industries or any different industries about, uh, like you say, um, how it's planted in, it's enriched, and even the addictive quality, the addictive purposes uh, of like you know gluten and the additives that they put into like a, a product. It's like it's a continuous business cycle. And I think that um, the reality that people who do suffer from these conditions, like you're talking about, Doc, is that um, not only do we have to look at it from like the medical health standpoint, but also to, like you say, the beneficiaries and uh, what is the, the system. And, and I think if you, you know, when you look into some of these systems, you'll see some of the intricacies about how things really run and like in our corporate world. And it makes me very alarmed and, and saddened too at the same time. So, I mean, t this is such good information. Like to me, knowing the ins and outs to be able to tell my patients now, Doc, about like when you talked about gluten in the different forms and 
uh, about zane and things of that sort like different forms of gluten is just valuable throughout that for all of this and man I, I i this is such good info like we we didn't even touch mold yet and i was just like i know this is like a fire hydrant stuff we need to do another court or something where we have mold yeah. uh, about it because courtney's got her mold story and i wanted to hear that too um <laughs> we we have to do a part two of this i feel like yeah it's, it's too good it is too oh. good so I have one other thing. Did you have anything else, Chris? I didn't want to cut you off. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm, I'm with Doc in court. I mean, I, truly, I just say to all the people who are listening, it's just like this is really good info to the fact that people really realize about what they're eating. And then um, I think it would be a lot for the people to digest this one piece. And then we're like, okay, we could talk about mold the other time. I mean, but whatever you guys yeah. think, this is crazy good. Yeah. It is good. I think we should wrap this one up because I, I love, I mean, the takeaway from this episode is understanding that there are so many nuances and complexities to the immune system and to gluten. And that a lot of times something, it seems as simple, right? As gluten, right? But there's, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of labeling. People just think, well, I'm going to try gluten-free. Well, if I guess for most people, like if you're looking at something on a shelf and it says gluten-free and it's just wheat, barley, and rye, but they're sensitive to another form of gluten, mm -hmm. that protein, then you could just be lost. I mean, it could, it may take you forever to figure out what it is that you're sensitive to. So I think just having a more critical eye of what it is that your body's responding to, and maybe working with a practitioner that can do the appropriate testing, whether it's, you know, gluten genetic testing, like we talked about to really see what is it that my body genetically could be predisposed to reacting to so that I can cultivate a diet that supports healing and not inflammation. But if you're listening and maybe you just want to have like a couple practical takeaways, you know, what is it, Dr. Osborne, that you feel like everybody could benefit from? Is it removing at least wheat, barley, and rye? Is it, is it that component or is it it's like, because you hear of so many different inflammatory foods, right? Corn and, you know, is oatmeal okay? And you know, what about wheatgrass? Is that gluten? Like there's all these little like mystery foods. So where do you feel like if you're listening to this, and you're like, okay, well, I try to go gluten-free, but maybe I'm not doing enough. What would you advise somebody to do? Mm -hmm. Like just given, you know, yeah. the landscape of the food that we have right now? You know, that's, that's a really great question. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that the answer is so complex, but I'm going to try to make it as succinct as I can. I think if you suspect that you are gluten sensitive, you need to get tested, period. Um, and the reason why is nobody commits to the nuance of learning unless they uh, their hand is forced in some way. And I don't mean forced as in coerced. I mean, just like, okay, I have this autoimmune disease. I'm trying to figure it out. I've been gluten-free wheat, barley, rye, but I'm not better. And in my mind, I'm leaving the gluten-free diet. It didn't work for me. Because I'm now moving back into the arena of wheat, barley, and rye. And really, I just didn't go deep enough into the arena of gluten because I never had the appropriate testing done to help me understand that I really needed to focus and concentrate on the nuance of what it actually means so that I could implement the appropriate diet and allow my body the opportunity to heal. So step one is if you suspect it's playing a role in your illness, you've got to get tested. And, and genetic testing, like I said earlier, it's the only way to do it, in my opinion. And you know there are a lot of big popular genetic testing companies online. They don't measure the markers for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So there's, there's two types of markers that, that have to be investigated. There's 
there's celiac markers, mm -hmm. which are which are basically HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. These are specific genes. And then there are non-celiac gluten sensitivity markers, and those are HLA-DQ1 and 3. And most tests don't measure or rule out DQ1 or 3. They're only looking for 2 or 8. So if you're a 1 and 3 and you don't have a 2 or 8, you will fall through the cracks of some of those other tests and be told you don't need to worry about gluten. So it's very important that you get the right genetic testing done so that you get a comprehensive look of these different genetic markers to help you make that determination. Because once, my experience is once you know you, you need to look at gluten and gluten-free as a, as a core to, to, to your journey to health, now you can commit the time and the energy and the effort to doing it right. But if you don't know, it's always in your mind subliminally at the back of your mind. It's always going to be kind of like, oh, I don't know if I should do that. And then when you get into a social situation where there's some pressure, like you're at grandma's house and your favorite snickerdoodle cookies at Christmas time, right? You're just going to go ahead and do that. You're going to eat those cookies. You're going to eat them for several reasons. One, because you love the taste. Two, because it's easy and convenient. Three, because you don't want to hurt your grandma's feelings, right? And, but then you're going to be paying a price if you are gluten sensitive, right? Because the other thing is remember that if you're gluten sensitive, one breadcrumb that's 20 parts per million can cause inflammation for up to three months. So the, the, the half-life of gluten antibodies is, you know, in scientific papers is three to four months. So if we think about how long will wow. gluten exposure create a persistent inflammation, it can go on. For a number of months and this is why when people say i'm going to do that gluten-free diet for a week and see what happens yeah yeah good luck you're not you're not gonna <laughs> i don't anticipate you're gonna feel tremendously better like you may have some subtle changes and improvements but you're, you're not going to take 10 years of autoimmune disease go gluten-free for one week and you've still got you know a subway sandwich that you ate two weeks ago and a pizza that you ate two and a half weeks ago circulating antibodies doing damage in your body for the next two months you're not going to feel tremendously better so again that goes back to Test, don't guess. Because so many people, you know, health, you, you said something earlier, Courtney, that I want, I want to just say was, was a beautiful statement. And it was, nobody can help you the way you can help yourself. I, I'm paraphrasing what you said, but you generally said that like, no doctor should have sole responsibility on decision-making over your health. You are the person in charge of your destiny and your journey. And so, if you're that person and you have knowledge, then you can move forward with that knowledge and confidence. But if you don't have that knowledge, then you get lost in the mix of maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. And there's a lot of doubt. And there's a look, I can promise you gluten-free diet is a 12-week learning curve minimum. So if you're really going to do it well, you've got to dive in and know what you're doing because there are mistakes. There's gluten in, in lipstick, ladies. There can be gluten in skincare products, in hair products. There's gluten if you lick an envelope. There's gluten in that sticky adhesive, right? And so these are just some things that you don't know about, maybe. Maybe some of you do, but, but you have to dedicate to learning what you need to know to get better. And if you don't, then the gluten-free diet is going to be a trend that comes and goes in your life that doesn't really have any great impact on your health, but could have a tremendous impact in a negative way because you just didn't do it right and you didn't know that you needed to do it right so like so doc when you say the hla dq one two and three and eight is that the right the, the three the and, and then which my theory just came on i have or whatever it is alexa <laughs> but anyway uh disregard that plus the typing guys but which which, which i mean which uh, lab do you like the best or do you i mean i'm not saying you promote them but do you have a particular one that you like 
glutenfreesociety.org, you can do genetic testing there. And it, it incorporates, it's part of our mission. Our mission is, is to save 100 million lives. And part of the way I look at that mission is, I, you know, I only see 350 people a year in my practice. That's it. New, new people, right? So it's, it's not, it, it's not the, the biggest practice in the world that I can afford the time to spend quality time with a lot of people because it takes a lot of time, right? So that's what, why I founded Gluten-Free Society was, you know, in our, in our mission is to help people understand what gluten is, very similar to what we've talked about today. But our mission is also to provide people with tools because one of the realities is I know that if you go back to your doctor, you, some of you are going to have fantastic doctors who will do this. They'll do this testing for you. And some of you are going to have doctors that laugh at you and say, gluten's not important. I'm not going to measure it. And some of you are going to have doctors that say, I don't really know what to measure. And some of you are going to have doctors that say, your insurance isn't going to cover it, so I don't feel comfortable ordering it. Like you're, There's all kinds of responses that you're going to get back. That's mm -hmm. why we offer it as a direct-to-consumer service on Gluten-Free Society, because Excellent. it just it cuts out any confusion. So if your doctor won't order it, you, know, you can get it there very, at a very affordable price, and you can know. And once you know, then you can commit to what you need to commit to to get better. I mean, that's like mic drop right there. I mean, if, if everybody out there, go to glutenfreesociety.org to get theirs checked out. I mean, this is uh, such golden information. I mean, and Doc, um, where do they find you on like, uh, you know, social media, Instagram, on websites? What, where do they find you in your feed? Yeah, Facebook, um, Dr. Peter Osborne. Um, they can find us on Instagram. I think Dr. Osborne, they can find us on TikTok at Gluten Free Warrior. You know, those are social media channels. And then, you know, beyond that, they can just visit drpeterosborn.com um, and they can learn more about, about me and my background. And if they want to, if they want to reach out, you know, to our practice and figure out if they want to come see me or something like that, we do a lot of consultations. So those are the big ways that, that people can learn about me. And then, you know, ultimately, if maybe if you just want to kind of get your feet wet more in my world, you could read No Grain, No Pain. You know, it's, uh, you can pick that up on Amazon or Simon and Schuster's, uh, website or Barnes and Noble or any other ma major book outlet. That's great. And you also have a masterclass that's available to people. And I, I believe you said that was for free called glutenology. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And I mean, that's incredible. I think you said there were like 14 hours of content that's on there, which is unbelievable. If you're listening, I mean, you can obviously tell Dr. Osborne is incredibly passionate about what he does. And I love working with practitioners that are as fired up about what they're doing as, as the same passion that I have for my own health, because I feel like sure. those are the people that get it. Like they yep. understand the value of what they're bringing. So when you know, you find somebody like this that resonates with you, like dive deep into what they're doing because you know they don't leave any stones unturned. And those are the people that will stop at nothing to get the answers. And when you have those people in your corner or your back pocket, whether you're working with them one-on-one -on -one or you're just utilizing their programs, they're going to be the needle movers for you. Like th those are the people that are going to help you find the missing link possibly to your health because they've spent their life's work dedicated to this one area they believe so passionately about. So glutenology is the, the masterclass that you have available. So anybody that's listening can can go on and take that. I'm actually really excited. I need to go on and, and dive into that. But Me too. Um, this is great. Yeah. So thank you so much for your work. Do you have anything else you want to just share with our audience as we kind of wrap it up here? Nothing more than just believe in yourself. Believe in the ability that God has given your body an innate 
intelligence mm. that knows how to heal. You just have to get out of its way. And when I say get out of its way, it's not an, an insult to any of you listening. It's just every disease that we can, that we could classify is inflammatory in nature, mm -hmm. right? Every, I mean, minus infectious disease, if you get an acute infection, that's maybe a little bit different, but all the diseases that we struggle with are, are inflammatory. And when I say get out of your way, I'm, I, what I'm basically saying is make different choices, right? Make different choices, choose food differently choose relationships differently. And that includes the relationship with yourself, right? Start with, you know, you know, I always start with love starts with you. Love yourself so much that you create boundaries in your life around your food, your sleep, your exercise, your sunlight exposure, that you respect and love yourself and the gift that God gave you so much that other people will gravitate towards you and they'll respect that too. And they won't try to influence you in a negative way. They won't try mm -hmm. to pull you into, you know, a restaurant where you don't want to go eat. I mean, because you, you, we live in this really, really different world. It's a very different landscape than when I was a child growing up and, and even more different than when our parents, you know, were growing up. Up is down and down is up. That's kind of the way the world is, is, is moving. And if you don't establish a reality and, and a self-respect and create a boundary around yourself, You'll struggle your whole life trying to find meaning in everything, not just meaning in your health, but meaning in your, in your life, meaning in your purpose. And so love yourself so much, like love yourself so much that you create a boundary and that you, you create a, a mindset of seeking knowledge so that you can do better, be better and serve more. Because I think if we all have that same attitude, like the world would be just such a wonderful place. Not that it's not a wonderful place now, but you know, I think if we all had a, a, the heart of a servant and, and we started by serving ourselves and honoring the gift that we've been given, which is life, then I think, I think we could all shine a big light and, and that's just contagious and that just makes everything better. Great words, Doc. Um, such great words. And I encourage all of you guys to go out and follow Dr. Osborne here and look at his work and read his literature. Um, you guys see how as much, as much passion as he has. And always, I agree with what Courtney says and what you say. is like you always, you want to be, find people around you that are as passionate about life as you are and, and don't step down. You got to keep stepping up with that. And so, again, Doc, um, we thank you so much for being on the, the podcast with us. And, I mean, uh, we like to find people that are really passionate and just want to say things. And, uh, Courtney, I really say thank you. And Dr. Axe gives, him, gives you his best. And, um, Man, I, I'm telling you, I think part two would be great with mold. So uh, we, everybody out there, stay tuned. And um, anything else, Court? I mean, man, I'm just still mulling over all the things. I got so many notes right here. I got to go over. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Osborne. I am definitely excited for a part two for this. So if you're game, we want to bring you back and, uh, and dive a little bit into mold territory. Uh, because we can get just as fiery about that one as we did this episode. <laughs> I like it. I like fiery. I do too. I, I do too. I, We're spicing it up. I like fiery. I like fiery. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be honored to come back and, and, I'll, and I'll just leave you guys with this little teaser. Mold mimics gluten. Oh, man. And there's oh, a lot of scientific evidence that shows that. And so um, we could dive into that at another time. Oh, that'd be great. I just leave you with that. Oh, man. Oh, man. To be continued, everyone. <laughs> we'll leave That's you on good. a cliffhanger. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Osborne. And uh, we're going to see you really soon back on the podcast, Dr. Motley. It's always fun to co-host with you. Court.
Great to see you. Um, we'll, we'll catch up. I'll call you later. Okay. I'll call you later today. We're going to do it. All right. Let's All right. do it. Well, thanks see so guys. much, guys. All right. Thank take you. it easy, everybody.